Well, welcome to Grace Church in Claremont. My name is Caleb Brazier, the campus pastor here at Claremont. Grace Church exists as one church in many different communities. Uh, so we have multiple campuses around Central Florida. Uh, here in Claremont, we're the newest campus. We started in January of last year, so we're just over a year and a half old now. Um, but one of the things uh, that's been going on here in the last couple months, and as we will continue uh, over the summer, is working with Grace Church to transition, to spin off uh, from being a campus to launch and plant here as a local autonomous church here in South Lake County. Um, so we'll be known as as the Grove Church starting in September uh, in just a couple of months. And so we'll be transitioning then. If you have any questions about that transition or stuff that's going on, um, just shoot me an email. Come grab me afterwards. We'd love to get together and talk about that. But we are continuing our study of 1 Samuel this morning. One of the things that marks us here is we are expository preachers. Now what that means is that the majority of time what we're doing is we're just walking verse by verse chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Um, We think that this is God's revelation to us, showing us who he is and what he's done for us. And we just want to get underneath that and hear and listen. So in essence, every Sunday, we just want to hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. Our job then is to take that, expose it, and then see how it applies in our lives. Uh, And so we are continuing our study through 1 Samuel. So we have um, started and looked at how the story began with this crazy family um, that was uh, soap opera-esque. If you read the first three chapters, uh, it got weird. Uh, but we see in the midst of that, God promises this son named Samuel who's born. And we see kind of this character take the center stage. Uh, I mean, the book is named after him, First Samuel. He's this prophet that seems like he's going to be turning Israel around and back to God. But in the last couple chapters, we've seen that a different character has taken center stage, as we've seen now this character called the Ark of the Covenant. Um, In this ark, this box that represented and symbolized God's relationship, his covenant relationship with his people was central to the people of Israel and their worship. It was here that God met with and spoke to his people. It was there in the central part of the tabernacle, the temple, uh, where it was placed in the most holy place, the holy of holies, and no one could enter into that place without being killed, apart from the high priest once a a year through a... uh, uh, cleansing ceremony to make sure that he could walk in and not die. And so this is the, the ark that has taken center place. And we saw that Israel was in a battle with the Philistines. They lost and they said, what are we going to do to win? So I've got an idea. Let's bring the ark out here. If we bring the ark out, God has to act. So they go and they get the ark of the covenant. They bring it into battle thinking if we lead this thing out, then surely victory will follow. What we saw in chapter four is not only did the Israelites lose, but the ark was captured by the Philistines unthinkable up to this point that God's presence it seemed like was now taken away from the people of Israel what we saw last week in chapter 5 was that when the Philistines got the ark then all of a sudden the glory of God began to lay heavy on them his his hand was heavy uh, the text says and we see over and over again these plagues and then mice and rats begin to infest people wherever the ark goes And so it's almost these plagues that follow, and the Philistines just start passing it from town to town, saying, get it away from us. And God, we see, actually didn't lose the battle in chapter 4. He didn't need anybody. He was powerful enough on his own to be able to handle an entire 
country. And so the ark gets passed around, plagues are falling on the, the Philistine people, and that leads us now to chapter 6, where finally the Philistines go, well, what are we going to do with this box? Everybody's sick. We got rice, uh, rice, that would be mice and rats running around, uh, not rice. Uh, rice is great, but not the point of the text. Rice is really great if you're hungry and want 10,000 of something, then it's perfect. One of my favorite comedians said that. I don't know. Let, let's get back to what we're talking about. Rice, my, oh my gosh, mice and rats infesting the Philistine people. And that leads us now to chapter six, figuring out. What are they going to do with this box, with this Ark of the Covenants? We'll be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6 this morning, reading the whole chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones next to you. Those aren't seats that are saved. Those are Bibles that you can use. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. We'll be in chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 22. If you grab one of those Bibles, we'll be on page 197. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, and the verse numbers are the smaller ones. So we'll be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send the ark of God away, the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, with what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. And perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch." If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it's he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us, and it happened to us by coincidence. The men did just that, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the, that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Now these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, 
one for Ashdod, one for Geza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they sat down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So what in the world are we going to talk about today? Well, how to make decisions, how to make golden tumors, and which cows to get to be able to lead you to the decisions you need to make in your life. I'm kidding. Okay, if you're new here, that's not at all what we're going to talk about. This is a terrible way to make decisions. Um, We're going to be looking particularly at two things that we see here in this text. We'll see first the guilt of sin in verses 1 through 18. Uh, But then in verses 19 through 21, this is really kind of the point of this whole chapter, is we see the holiness of God. We'll see the guilt of sin and how people deal with it in verses 1 through 18. And secondly, we'll look at the holiness of God in verses 19 through 21. So first, the guilt of sin. In these first 18 verses, we have this weird interaction of these Philistines who go, and we see it's been seven months that they've had the ark. So seven months now, they've been experiencing plagues of tumors and mice. Not rice, but mice. And they ravaged the land. And so it's kind of similar to a smaller scale of the plagues that were sent to Egypt. So for seven months, they experience this. And finally, they come to their religious leaders and go, what are we supposed to do? We've got, it's got to be this box. What are you supposed to do with it? So their advice to them was take it and take the images of these plagues that have been put on you, create these golden images, send them back to the Lord, representative of all the lords that we have in all the cities, both fortified and unwalled, representing all the guilt that we have, and offer that as a guilt offering back to this God of Israel. And then uh, maybe he'll lift his hand from you. And we see that there is this guilt that's associated with them. They feel it both as the heavy hand of God laid on them they then were asking themselves, what are we supposed to do with this? And they offer up this guilt offering we see in verses 4 and 5. And they send these mice and these tumors back with the ark on these cows. And, and they did with the cows just to make sure. They put every single obstacle possible to make sure that this was in fact God. Because they took cows and separated them from their calves, their children, They had never been separated before. The cows had never been yoked. And they said, separate the children, take them home, take the calves home, yoke up the cows. And naturally, the instinct will be for them to go back to their young. But if they go straight on to Israel, then we'll know that this is God. So they kind of set up this fleece, this test to see if it is in fact God. And sure enough, the cows go straight back to Israel, neither turning to the left or to the right. And I love the one detail in verse 12, that they were lowing as they went. I don't really know if that means anything. It just is a helpful image that they were just mooed the whole way back to Israel. And so these, uh, these Philistines say, here's what you need to do to deal with your guilt. Offer this back to the Lord. And we read that as sophisticated Westerners in the 21st century and go, boy, they are idiots. How is, first of all, 
First of all, what replica or what image are you going to use to be able to fashion the tumors out of? Right? If you're supposed to make five tumors, whose tumor are you using to try to replicate? So first of all, it just starts off weird. But you take them, and I don't know if it's just misshapen, who knows what it is, but they take these. I would love to be the goldsmith that gets that work order one day from the government. It's like, all right, just got done building this candlestick. Let's see what we got coming next. Oh, tumors today. All right, let's see how that goes. And so they offer up these tumors, and it's like, man, what are they thinking? That's just dumb, trying to deal with their guilt and offering it to the Lord with these uh, mice and these tumors. And they tried to deal with the guilt that they had before God themselves. And so it can be easy for us to read that and go, that's ridiculous, let's just keep moving on. But I want us to pause before we do, because while we may not make golden tumors and mice, we do the exact same thing as we try to deal with our guilt on our own. We may not be good goldsmiths, but we are really good at trying to offer up something to God for the guilt that we feel. And we try to fashion and create something that perhaps he will accept that maybe can deal with the guilt that's been nagging in the back of our minds. Maybe for your entire life, you felt guilt from baggage that you've had, things that you've done, and you've, you've heard the enemy whisper and tried to place that guilt and that shame on your shoulders. And listen, humans are incredible at fashioning things to try to deal with the guilt ourselves. And this is both for people who are religious and who aren't religious. We try to make up for the things in our lives. So whether it's jumping into social issues in the world, trying to make a good impact in the world, trying to outweigh the bad that we have. Or if you're religious, we, we are especially good at being able to do this. As we try to bolster up our record before God. And we try to then bring before him, well, look, look at the good things that I'm doing. Look how often I came to church this past month. God, aren't you impressed with how often I came? It was early one morning and it was raining. I still came, God. And you, you look for those pats on the back and we try to, try to bolster up the good things that we're doing to try to outweigh the negative and thinking, okay, this is the guilt that I feel for the time that I've fallen short this past week. I need to make up for it. Listen, this is the human tendency in every single one of us. This is how we respond naturally uh, to God. It's how we respond often to relationships. I remember uh, my wife and I got married in January a number of years ago, and a month later we had our very first Valentine's Day. Now, we had talked, we were, we were young, I was getting my master's, we were broke, we had no idea what was going on, and we were eating PB&J just about every night for dinner. So we said, this Valentine's Day, I know it's important, I know it's the first, but let's not get each other anything. This was her idea. She said, Noth- nothing, let's not get each other anything. We'll just love each other, and we will, we will have a great time together, eat PB&Js. I'm like, awesome, that sounds great. I will listen to the words you say, and I will do just that. (laughs) We all know where this is headed. So February 14th rolls around, 2012, and in walks my wife from a day at work with a card and some candy. And I said, what's that? That's a weird thing in your hand to bring home from work. She said, oh, well, I got you a Valentine's Day card. Wrote in it and got you just some candy that I know you like. I said, oh, that was sweet. (laughs) I didn't get you anything. 
And you, you saw just the, the, the mix of disappointment and frustration as I'm sure a lifetime of expectation, which was, what is my first Valentine's, going to look like, Valentine's Day going to look like as a wife? Is my husband just going to go over the moon? And then she walks with this meaningful card and my favorite candy, and I've got nothing to offer her. And I'm sitting there thinking, but I, I, so I, I, think, <laughs> I think we talked about this, and I think the words we used were nothing for Valentine's Day. I, is that what we used? Is that what we said? And as we walked forward, I saw that uh, quickly I learned the lesson that not always what is said is what is meant. And I began to peel back the layers of what it means to understand my wife, as 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7. And friends, that may be the most difficult command in the Bible, but it is a command. Husbands, you are, to, you are called to understand your wife. Not fix her, understand her. And be able to communicate with her and understand how she ticks, how she works. Uh, and so it, it was the beginning of the test for me, which I failed miserably. Now, what I did the next day, though, is I ran and got her favorite pieces of candy and then put together this incredible, like, um, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? Where well, you go someplace, there's a clue, then you go to another place, there's another clue. That's scavenger hunt. It was incredible. All over our huge 700-square-foot apartment, <laughs> just scattered throughout all these things, following these beautiful notes. And uh, the next day on February 15th, and I got the candy on sale and laid it all out, and she went, and, and it ended up being okay. I just learned a lesson that day. Uh, we both did on what communication looks like between the two of us. But that feeling that I felt when I saw her face sink, that feeling of guilt that I felt of letting down my wife now on our first Valentine's Day, you know what my first thought was? I've got to go and make up for this. And friends, my concern is that often with God, when we fall and we sin, not if, but when, it will happen, if not every week, every day, if not every day, every hour, if not every hour, every minute. When we fall and fall b- before that per- perfect standard that God has laid before us, our first instinct is to say, I've got to go and make up for this. And we try to fix and fashion something, this guilt offering to bring before him. And friends, we do the exact same thing. We try to maybe follow enough rules that perhaps it will make up for and outweigh the times in which we've fallen short. But friends, there is no amount of rule following that can deal with the guilt of your sin. In trying to do that, it's like missing the first question on a test and then trying to get the rest right to make 100. It's not happening. And if we try to put our heads down and make up for the guilt in our lives, we will never be able to. And we aren't even dealing with the main problem because our guilt still remains in trying to make up for it. Our guilt still lies there for what we've done. And not just the feelings of guilt, but and that's not because often we, we, think, we think of being guilty or feeling guilty and we think emotionally, I feel guilty for this. But your great problem before God is not feeling guilty, it is being guilty. It's not an emotion, it's a verdict. We all stand on our own before a holy God, guilty as charged for the crimes that we've committed against a holy God and rebelled against him. Every single one of us, we stand guilty, and that guilt has to be dealt with. And there's nothing that we can fashion and bring before him to deal with that. 
So this is the first thing that we see in the first great problem that we have in our sin is that it gives us this guilt that has to be dealt with that we can't deal with on our own. And our guilt has to be dealt with because of the fact that God is holy. He cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. He has to deal with it because he is good and he is holy and he is a good judge. So that gets us then to the second part that we see here in verses 19 through 21, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Our sin has to be dealt with because God is holy. So in 19 through 21, the ark is returned. The Philistines get it out of their camp. The cows, they're lowing the whole way to Beth Shemesh, which also, how many times can you put the word Beth Shemesh in a chapter? Anyway, uh, so they're lowing the whole way back there, and they finally get there, and you would think this is the triumphant moment that Israel has been waiting for. The ark, the center point of their worship and their relationship with their covenant God has finally been returned. The ticker tape parade is going off. LeBron James signs with the Israelites, and they go on because they've defeated the Philistine warriors. Like, it's finally happened. But that's not what happens in 19 through 21, is it? When the ark gets back, it says that he, being God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, which was within Israel, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. So when the ark finally gets back, it gets within this village on the outskirts of Israel, and the first thing that happened is 70 men are struck dead instantly for looking at the ark. And their response in verse 20, when this happens, some of the men say, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? What they're saying is, who, who is worthy to stand in the presence of this holy God? Get him away from us. That's what they're saying here. They're saying, listen, get, get him away because no one can stand in his presence. Get this ark back to Jerusalem. Get it back to Shiloh. Get it back in the tabernacle. Just get it away from us. And so it's a bit of a surprise when we see how it returns. But the point that's trying to be dealt here, and this is really the point that we've seen so far in the first six chapters of Samuel, is just how much God cares about the glory of his name and the holiness of his people. Because remember, the glory had departed and the ark was captured, not because, uh, just because the ark was captured. The glory departed from Israel because people had already departed God. They turned their backs on him. And so God left them. So God is drastically concerned with his own glory and his own holiness and making sure people understand just how different, just how other he is. That's what holy really woodenly translates as. It's other, different, no one like him. That's why when we look at the characteristics of God, you find a number of them throughout the Bible. God is love. Uh, God is patient. God is faithful. But there is one attribute that's repeated three times and only one, and it's done twice. And it's that God is holy, holy, holy. We see it in Isaiah 6, we see it in Revelation. And that's partly because that holiness really encompasses the entirety of who he is. It gives us what kind of love God has. It's a holy love. It is an other kind of love. It gives us the kind of faithfulness that God has. It's an other and holy kind of faithfulness. And so when God comes back into the camp, he needs his people to understand just how holy he is. But when that happens, we read that, and there's a bit of us that goes, gosh, that seems a bit harsh. Like, seriously? 
the ark just comes back and you're going to kill 70 people for looking at it? It's not like they went and tried to sell it to the Nazis like in Indiana Jones. Like they just looked at it. I've got to stop with Indiana Jones references. I'm sorry. I just can't help it. They just looked at it. So God, just like take it back a bit. But what we see, if we, if we look and read the Old Testament up until this point, God has been crystal clear in how his people are to relate to the ark. So we see in Numbers 4, uh, as the ark is being constructed, God is giving very clear instructions on how the people are to deal with the ark. In Numbers 4, verses 5 through 6, uh, God says to the people, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen. So the veil was the, the veil, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. It was behind there that the ark of the covenant sat and God's presence dwelt. So go in, take down the veil of the screen, and cover the ark of the testimony, the ark of the covenant, with it. Then, just in case that wasn't enough, they shall put on it a covering of goatskin. And just in case that wasn't enough, they should spread on top of that a cloth of blue, and then shall put in its poles. So God is saying, every time the ark is transported, make sure it's covered by the veil, covered by a goatskin, and covered by a cloth of all blue, so that no one can see it. Later on in verses 18 through 20, he continues. He says, these are the people that are to handle it. Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things, to the most holy places. And this is how they're to deal with it. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. So God, in the very beginning of this construction of the ark, was crystal clear with them. Make sure anytime it's moved, make sure it's covered. Even the priests, the Levitical priests who are handling the sacrifices, make sure they don't go in and look even for a moment unless they too will die. And so they wanted to make sure that it was covered. But it wasn't for the ark's sake, right? God wasn't concerned if transporting it through the Middle East with sun damage would cause the wood to fade or maybe the gold would get a little dusty or the, the sand from the Israelite chacos would dust up and get all over the ark. No, he wasn't concerned about the ark, right? I just bought a, a, or had given to me over Christmas a pretty nice fire pit that we put in our backyard underneath some cool like hanging lights straight off of Pinterest. It's incredible. And it's right here in our backyard, but with it came this little black cover, because as we saw last week, the Florida sun makes things disappear, right? It disintegrates things. It just makes things that were once things no longer things. And so this black cover is given to be able to put over the fire pit so that as the Florida sun rises and the beams of destruction fall on my backyard, they don't reach the fire pit. They're covered and protected by this cloth. But friends, that's not what God is concerned about here in Numbers. He's not saying, make sure you cover it up to protect it. Now, these rules surrounding the Ark of the Covenant were not given to protect the Ark. They were given to protect the people. God's saying, make sure you don't look, because if you look, you will die. He said, verse 19, that they may live and not die. That's God's concern here, saying, here are the rules, because this is how it will work. My holiness and my presence dwelt there in that place. If you look on it, because of your sin, you will be gone in a moment. So God lays this down crystal clear. And so the men in Beth Shemesh, after this, they rejoice, but they look upon the ark. 
and 70 men are struck dead. And the reminder for the people is that you are so different from your covenant God. The holiness of God in comparison with the sin of his people. That on their own, when those two things come in contact, friends, there's only one way that that's turning out, and it's not going to be good for the people. When sin walks into the presence of a holy God, it is consumed and obliterated. That's what we see throughout the Old Testament. And God is putting in these instructions, whether it be in the sacrificial system or within the construction of the ark, to protect the people because he knows his holiness and what happens when it comes in contact with a sinful person. And he's saying, make sure you stay away because you cannot enter into my presence and not die. You can't touch the ark and not die. You can't even look at it because I am so holy. And these people are now in their sin completely separated from me. And there is no hope at reconciliation here on your own. Because what you need to do to be able to come back into my presence, you have to be perfect. You have to be spotless and you have to be blameless. There can be no sin, not only in your future or your present, but in your past. You have to be perfect, and then you can come into my presence. But if there is a trace of sin and you enter into my presence, then you don't stand a chance. So stay away. Do not look. We read the story from C.S. Lewis a few weeks ago in his story, The Chronicles of Narnia, before the children met Aslan, this great lion, and the beaver was talking to them and told them about this lion that was on the way. And one of the girls asked, is a lion? That sounds terrifying. Is he safe? And the beaver, one of my favorite quotes in the whole story, looks at the girl and says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good, I tell you. And friends, we need to understand that God is not safe. He is good. But we see in our sin, in comparison to his holiness, There is a certain terror that exists there on our own as we now have to be made perfect somehow and our guilt has to be dealt with. And we come to the same conclusion that the Israelites come to in verse 20. Who then is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one. In sin, there is no one who can stand before him. And so that's the conclusion that we get to at the end of this, that because God is holy, we have to be made clean in order to draw near to him. We have to be made pure in order to know him and to be in his presence. And so we see kind of this twofold problem that our sin creates. One, our sin creates guilt that has to be dealt with. And two, we have to be made pure and holy and clean to be able to enter back into God's presence because he is so holy and so different. And so try to imagine being an Israelite in this story, and you hear about the ark coming back, and you remember the, all the rituals of the sacrificial system, and you know that, okay, here's how this thing works. I know that God is holy. I know I can't touch or look at the ark, that it's placed there in the most holy place behind a veil, behind a curtain to make sure no one ever walks in through there except once a year when the high priest goes through a, a ritual cleansing to be able to walk in for one time, take the blood of bull and goat, sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the ark to be able to offer an atonement and a sacrifice for the people of Israel dealing with our guilt and atoning for our sin one day a year. And you know how long that lasts? 365 days. And then they got to do it all over again. 
and they had to go through this process. And the people of Israel would never imagine being able to themselves walk into that room, into that most holy place. And if you were in the shoes of an Israelite in this time, I'm sure that, that probably they would long for and imagine what it would be like to have a high priest who maybe didn't have any sin. What if, yeah, our high priest now has to go through this cleansing to walk in, make sure his sin is dealt with so he can go in once a year and bring this sacrifice, but what if, what if we had a high priest that didn't have any sin and he could go in and out of the room as he pleased into the presence of God without any fear, with confidence and boldness, drawing close to God? Wouldn't that be incredible? Imagine this mediator, this priest who stood as the mediator between God and his people if we had one who was sinless. Oh, it would be incredible. Imagine the blessings that would flow down to us. But I don't think they had any category for what Jesus was going to do. Because not only was he perfect, not only was he sinless, not only was he that sinless high priest who could walk into the presence of God without any fear, but he also makes every single person that trusts and follows him sinless and righteous and holy as well. So what that means is that for for these Israelites, what they couldn't understand and what they didn't quite understand yet was that there would come a one who would not only be spotless and blameless, but he would give his perfect life to each and every person that followed him so that if they trusted him, that record was given. It was imputed, Paul writes in Romans, and accounted and credited to each person who believes so that then we can walk into that same holy place now. Not because of our own record, but because of Christ that's been given to us. So that's not just our perfect high priest that can walk in and out of the holy places with confidence, but it's every single person that believes in Jesus as well. It's that kind of confidence that we have now. Not in the good things that we can somehow offer to God, but we can walk forward because of the blood of Christ. Because of His perfect righteousness that is given to you if you believe. And so as you walk in, you can walk in boldly into the presence of God, not having to tremble, not having to fear, but not walking in arrogantly on your own actions. It's by grace through faith, walking in by the work of Christ and what he has done for you. Not only giving you his righteousness, but friends, he has dealt with your guilt as well. Because there on the cross, yes, he gave us his perfect life for every single person that believes in him. But also what happened is he took on every person's sin on his shoulders that believes in him. So he stood there underneath the wrath of God, bearing our guilt. That verdict was poured out on him. The innocent one now declared guilty. And the punishment for our sin was poured out on him. And we see on the cross then, Jesus answers this twofold problem of sin. Our guilt is dealt with as God punishes him in our place. And we are made holy and righteous and pure and clean, given Jesus' perfect record as our own. This is what is given to us and exactly what Christ did so that we can now with confidence walk right into that holy of holies, right into the presence of God because of what he's done for us. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews 10 writes in verses 19 through 23, we read earlier before communion. Hear it now as he writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. How? By the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, through that veil. 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With what? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our guilt being dealt with, and our bodies washed with pure water. We're made pure and clean and righteous. We see this twofold problem of sin Christ answers on the cross, the divine problem he solves. That's why I love hymns, that hymns often succinctly and beautifully capture teachings like this. I don't know if you've heard the old Baptist hymn, Rock of Ages, but it begins, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. The cross is the double cure for our sin, saves us from wrath, deals with our guilt, and makes us pure, cleanses us, so we can now boldly draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And so we see the contrast from what Hebrews, the author in Hebrews writes and what the author in 1 Samuel writes. Right? Look back at verse 5. This was the, the Philistine uh, answer to the problem was to go and make images of your tumors and images of your mice. And then perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Their solution was to go try to fashion something, offer it as a guilt, offering before God, and perhaps he'll lighten his hand. Perhaps he will remove that heaviness. Friends, because of Christ, the perhaps of a manufactured and man-made religion has now been replaced with a confidence in the gospel. We do not have to sit back and cross our fingers hoping, perhaps God will accept me. Perhaps I will be able to enter into his presence. Perhaps he will forgive my sins. Friends, it does not matter what you walked in here with this morning. The grace of God is greater than your sin. This is the truth that we see laid out for us, and we no longer have to cross our fingers, but when we rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can walk forward confidently, drawing near in the full assurance of faith as we boldly approach the throne of grace because of Christ's finished work in our place. Friends, that's the truth of the gospel, and now our lifelong struggle is to believe that. So that doesn't mean then that you believe it and then you're good to go. You go and handle the, the, the varsity things of Christianity. Friends, the rest of your life will be a struggle to believe that truth, to rest. Because again, our, our tendency is to work. We want to earn. Friends, listen, if you work and get God's love, that's not grace. That's wages. That's a paycheck. And God's salvation to you is not a paycheck. Friends, it is a gift that you did not deserve and you did not earn. And we rest, we rest in that gift, believing that truth each and every day. And that will be your lifelong struggle to believe that very thing and to rest from trying to pay for your guilt. Because there is no amount of your manufactured goodness that can make up for your sin. But we now can walk forward knowing the holiness of God, that we can walk forward into that presence of a holy God because of what Christ has done for us. Friends, one of the things that we need to do, particularly in the West, is to just completely throw out the image of a casual God. We've done an excellent job of kind of creating this image of a God who is our co-pilot or a God who is our homeboy. 
And friends, let me just say as strongly as I can, you will never be able to create uh, an image of God that is too high for him to be able to fulfill. He is holy and there is nothing like him. Friends, we need to throw away the bumper stickers that have him as our co-pilot and burn the t-shirts that have him as our homeboy. This is the holy covenant God of his people who spoke and things started to be. This is the holy God that placed stars in the universe and has given mankind its breath and a soul. This is the holy God that now holds all of those things together and sustains them. This is the holy God that continues his sovereign will which nothing can stand against. This is a holy God who stands over all of his creation and has the earth as his footstool Friends, this is not a co-pilot. This is a God who is holy. And we need to lift up our vision of who he is. And then in in response to that, see how low and sinful we are. To create that gap wider and wider. Because what happens is we begin to see God as he truly is. And then we see ourselves as who we truly are. And that gap widens. Friends, what happens is the cross becomes that much bigger in your life. Until we throw away the picture of God as being casual, you will not be able to truly understand and appreciate what Christ has done on your behalf. He has torn the veil. He's opened the door. This holy God can now be your father. Friends, that is unbelievable. It's something the Israelites couldn't have even imagined. That through his holy death, he now gives us and invites us to a holy dad. And he invites us in to his presence, in his tenderness, and in his love. So we can now boldly approach the throne of grace because he went and he made a way. He loved us. He sent his son and he tore the veil. And not only that, but there will also be a day when we'll get to do what the people of 1 Samuel 6 would have thought impossible. We won't get to go and look at the ark. We'll be able to do something far greater than that. And we'll do it without fear. In Revelation 22, the very final chapter of the Bible, we get this picture of for every single Christian what our future looks like. In Revelation 22, verses 3 through 4, we we hear this, that no longer than for eternity future after Jesus has returned, no longer will there be anything accursed. All of our sin dealt with. Every single person made righteous that believes in him. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And listen to this. They will see his face. Friends, this holy God For those of you that trust and believe in Jesus, there will be a day when you will look into the eyes of your creator. And when you look and stand face to face, there will not be fear. There will not be trembling. Friends, that will be the fullest expression of joy imaginable for a human being. To be able to stand in the presence and the love and the acceptance of a holy God who is your father that one day we'll see Jesus and be like him too. We'll look into his eyes with our sin now removed, our anthem always in the house of the Lord, our sins, they were many, but his mercy is more. Let's pray. 
God, you are holy. You are different. You are other. God, and apart from you, there is no hope for us to be able to have a relationship with you. There is no hope for us to be able to enter into your presence. But God, you have loved us and you have sent your son. God, help us to see you as you truly are. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are and create in us a love and an affection and an appreciation for who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. God, may we see you as a holy God. And may you continue to draw us and invite us into your presence and help us to long for that day when we will see your face and we will sing along with the angel choir that you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with your glory. We pray this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen.